Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The central point of the book of Romans is that justification is received by faith alone in Christ alone. To be justified is a spectacular gift. It's an incredible gift. To be justified is to be forgiven of all of our sins. Though our souls, once stained by sin, we can be white as snow. All of our sins in Christ can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. More than that, to be justified is to be clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ and to stand in a position of grace in the presence of God. To be justified is moving from being an enemy of God. That that is what we are apart from the grace of God. We are enemies of God because we have rebelled against God. We have known what is right and we have deliberately done what is evil. And because of that, we are enemies of God. But to be justified is to move from being an enemy of God to a child of God, adopted into the family of God, beloved of God. To be justified is to move from being dead in your sins to alive in Christ, having a new life in Jesus Christ. To be justified is moving from being under the wrath of God on your way to hell to under grace and guaranteed eternal life. And all of this, our justification, our forgiveness, our, the righteousness given to us, our guarantee of eternal life, being adopted into the family of God, all of it is a gift that we receive by faith alone. Now, the Apostle Paul, he anticipates, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he anticipates a question that we need to answer. If, if all of this happens by faith alone and Christ alone, then what is faith? What does it mean to live by faith? What is this justifying faith that Abraham had? In Romans chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, he, being Abraham, is the father of us all. He is the father of us all, meaning he is the example for Jew and Gentile of what it means for us to put our faith in God and to receive justification. Okay, so what do we learn from Abraham on the life of faith? This is the question we're gonna be looking at this morning. What do we learn from Abraham on the life of faith? And my hope is to put some tools in your hands this morning so that when we leave here, all of us, by the grace of God, we are more equipped to walk with God by faith. The entire Christian life, from start to finish, is a life of faith. The only thing that we can do that pleases God is when we live by faith. There's nothing about us, there's nothing that we can do apart from trusting him that pleases him. And so what God is looking for in this room and what he's looking for in the world is are there people who trust him? God says, are there people who trust me, who take my word seriously? And that's the type of people we want to be. So what do, we, what do we learn about the faith of Abraham? Well, lesson number one is bet your life and eternity on the promises of God. What, is it, what does it look like to live by faith? What does it really mean to have faith? It means that you bet your life and eternity on the promises of God. If, if you want to live by faith, you, you take all your chips and you push them in on the promises of God, Romans 4, 20. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Biblical faith is based on the promises of God. Biblical faith has content. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in the promises of God. One way to think about faith is to say that faith, this is my favorite description of faith, is that faith is putting confidence in real or perceived promises. So what is is faith? Faith is putting your confidence, your trust in real promises or perceived promises. And by this definition, every person on the planet lives by faith. 
Muslims live by faith. Hindus live by faith. Atheists live by faith. Mormons live by faith. Everyone lives by faith. And the principle that has helped me a lot over the years is this principle. We can't miss it. It's that you will bet your life and eternity on a set of promises. You will. You have. You already have. When you walked in here today, you have already bet. You are betting and building your life and your eternity on a set of promises. And there are only four sources of promises to bet your life on. Promises, real perceived promises, only come from four sources. The first is people. Option number, option number one is people. And all day long, we are deciding whether or not we will trust what people have to say. Recently, I was at Jiffy Lube getting my oil changed, and I was sitting there, and I could hear him tinkering around underneath my van. And I, I, was, I was thinking about what was going on, and I had this question plaguing my mind. And here's the question. How do I know they're changing my oil? I mean, how do I know they're actually changing my oil? They could just be um, hitting the, the underside of my car with some wrenches, and then, and then I, I just drive away, and they haven't done anything. How do I know that they're actually changing my oil? Well, before I leave, they show me that dipstick. You know that dipstick that they show you? But I don't know what that means. Like, I don't, I, what does that even mean? I mean, it looks good, I guess, but I don't, I don't know what I'm saying when I say that. I just drive away. Now, why do I believe? Why do I believe? Or why am I confident that my oil has been changed? Because Jiffy Lube said so. That's, that's the source of my, I just believe them. I believe their promise. Or think about if you have a headache. If you have a headache and you're like, I need some ibuprofen, you go to a bottle, you open up a bottle, pull out a few pills, and you take those pills. How do you know it's ibuprofen? How do you know? You believe their word. It says ibuprofen on it, and you believe it. You're putting your confidence in the word of another person. Now, if someone came up to you off the street, just randomly, just, uh, just a, a real shady character comes up to you, and they have like a little baggie, and they have some pills in them, and they, and they look at you, and they're like, hey, um, trust me, you're really going to like this. Just take a few of these. I pr- you're going to feel real good. Now, what are you going to do? I'm probably going to take him just to see if he's right, you know. What could go wrong? I, but if I did that, if I said, oh, yeah, oh, you, you said I would like them? Okay, great. And, oh, kids, get, you know, kids, get over here. Let's just take some of these pills. What are you going to say? You're going to say, utterly reckless, utterly reckless, totally reasonable. Pop the ibuprofen, take the ibuprofen. Totally reckless. Open up a little baggie from a guy on the street and take those pills. What's the difference? You've concluded this word is trustworthy. This word is not all of life is built this way. We put our confidence in people's promises. And this gets really tricky for us because human beings, a lot of human beings, are well-meaning, but we're limited. So even if, even if we make a promise and we intend to keep it, it doesn't mean we can keep it. Uh, there are many times we, we give someone our word and we can't follow through. We wanted to, but we're limited. We didn't know about this factor or this thing came up in our, in our lives. And so it's tricky to put your confidence in people because we're limited. It's also tricky to put your confidence in the word of other, be, uh, other people because people lie. People lie. H- how many of you have ever been lied to? Show of hands. How many of you have ever been lied to? How many of you have told a lie in the last year? Okay, see, do you see the people who haven't raised their hands? <laughs> Don't trust them. <laughs> and we're seeing a pattern here to <laughs> Develop. How many of you have lied to your parents? How many of you have lied to your staff? Or, or to your boss? How many of you have lied to your bo- boss before? I'm looking at the Walnut Creek staff right now. Just <laughs> 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 We're going to have a meeting after this, people. People lie. So let me ask you, 
are you really going to build your life on what people say? Are you really going to build your life? You're going to bet your life on what some people say? When you know that they lie, people lie all the time. It is not wise. Well, you say, well, I'm not, I'm not betting my life on what people say. There's another source. The other source is ourselves. It's ourselves. We can build our lives on what we think. And every day we're deciding, will we trust ourselves? And what's the limit of trusting ourselves? And this gets tricky because our hearts are a fountain of ideas springing up from our emotions, our experiences, our personalities, and our sinful desires. It, it is our heart that whispers in our ear, eat that extra piece of, piece of cheesecake. Like that's, that's, where does that come from? Yeah, that, you know what you're missing in your life right now? It's that extra piece of cheesecake. If you want to find happiness, find cheesecake. Or it's your heart that says, you know, I don't really feel like forgiving that person. I know I should, but I don't want to. Where does that come from? It comes from you. It comes from your own heart. It's your heart that gets angry. It's your heart that fills up to the brim with lust. It's your heart that says, I don't feel like praying today. It's your heart that, that whispers, no one will know what you're doing. And everyone does it. So it's not that big of a deal. Every day we decide, will we trust ourselves? Proverbs 28, 26. One who trusts his own heart is a fool. The one who walks wisely will flee to safety. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that, that everything in our heart is wrong. That's not what I'm saying at all. To be a Christian is to be born again. It, it, it is to have new desires that come from God's spirit in our heart. The problem is that there are times when our heart knows the right thing to do. Aren't there so many times in your life where you're like, I know exactly the right thing to do in this situation, but you don't listen. And then there are times when your heart is telling you to do one thing and you know that it's wrong and you listen to your heart. You listen to your heart. The point is that my heart and other people cannot be the authority in the Christian life. If you're gonna walk with God, other people cannot be the authority. You can't even be the authority. So what's the other option? What's source number three? Well, it's the devil. It's the devil. Promises come from the devil. Wherever God speaks truth, the devil will speak lies. He, he will twist the truth, pervert the truth, manipulate the truth, and he makes false promises. Remember the first promise? I think this is the, I should have checked this before, but I think this is the first promise in the Bible uh, that is made by the devil to a human being. Here it is. No, Eve, you will not die. It's a false promise. It's a false promise. He's a liar. He is a liar. He is the father of all lies. And these false promises come through false teachers. And so the world, we would expect, would be flooded with false teachers and false religions. Islam is a false religion spewing lies. False promises. Hinduism, Buddhism, atheism. These are lies. These are false promises about the nature of reality and the nature of God and the nature of human beings. And certainly, you do not want to build your life on lies from the devil. Number four, source number four, God. God. And see, the life of faith begins when we bet our lives, when we build our lives, when we bet our eternity on the promises of God. We just push, take all of our chips, our lives, Push him in. God is true. 
God's word is true. This is what Abraham did. This is what the people of God have been doing for thousands of years. What we do is we don't hedge any longer. We don't waver back and forth, but we take our chips, put them in. God's word is true. It's true. I don't care what people say. I don't even care what I say. God's word is true. And certainly there is conflict in the soul because our flesh and our world and the devil are moving us in the wrong direction. And then you have God's word. Everything else is flowing in the wrong direction and God is calling us to a better life. A life where there's real joy, where there's real knowledge of God. He's calling us to a different life, a new life that brings him honor and glory. And so certainly there is conflict. And so in Proverbs chapter three, we, verse five, we see trust in the Lord with all of your heart. That's the instruction. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, all of your being. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all of your ways, know him and he will make your paths straight. Trust is the basis of all meaningful relationships. You can have no meaningful relationship with anyone unless you trust them. Uh, most of us, maybe all of us, have had the experience where we thought we knew someone really well, like a, a, a parent or a sibling, a spouse, a good friend, whatever it is, and you have a relationship for five years, ten years, and then one day you find out they've been lying to you. You find out, oh, no, that's not who that person is, and it is so destabilizing because you think, well, now I don't even know what's true. Who are you? Who are you? I don't even know who you are. And you, when you reach that point, you can't have a meaning, or it's very difficult to have a meaningful relationship. Why? Because trust is the foundation of all meaningful relationships. Now, if that is true, then how can we expect to know God deeply if we don't trust him? How could we ever expect to walk deeply with the Lord Jesus Christ if at the core of our being we don't trust him? If we look at God's word and we say, well, yeah, but like, this guy over here says that's not true. Or we look at God's word and we say, well, I, don't, I feel differently about that. Or I know this is what you say, God, but the devil, do you know what the devil has to say about this? Maybe he's right. You, you can't have a meaningful relationship until our feet land. Until we land and we say, let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true. We, we can't, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but it doesn't mean we're, we aren't going to struggle and waver back and forth. But when we are in our right mind, it's, it needs to be crystal clear that God's word is what we are building our lives on. Romans chapter 4 verse 20 says, He, Abraham, did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Now, I've been studying this passage all week and uh, the idea of bouncing around in my head all week or the question that's been in my head all week when I read verse 20 is I think, Paul, have you ever read the story of Abraham before? Abraham didn't waver in unbelief. <laughs> What's, tell me about Hagar. How, do, how, does that work? how does Hagar work with wavering or not wavering? And so I've thought about that question quite a bit. And my best understanding is that when it says he did not waver, it means that he landed. His feet landed. This is what God has said. God is true. Now, he gave in to temptation. He gave in to his fears because he's a, a human being. And we ought not to expect in our lives at the moment we say God's word is true, we're building our lives on God's word, that we're never going to sin or never going to struggle again. That, that We ought not to think that because otherwise we're going to be so disappointed in our lives. What Proverbs says is that though a righteous man falls seven times, 
What does the righteous man do? He gets up. And that's what we see with Abraham. That although Abraham sinned, he made mistakes, in his soul, in his right mind, he says, this is how I'm living. This is what I'm giving my life to. But what I, I've had hundreds of conversa- conversations over the years, and what I observe so often is that people waver back and forth. Day, it's just day to day. Do I feel like it today or do I not feel like it today? Do I feel like trusting God today or do I not feel like trusting God today? And so we waver back and forth, and so we can never make up any ground. We can never really grow because everything God says has to be tested by me, the authority. There will be a final authority in your life. There will be. It will be the voice, the word of the culture, the word of your flesh, the devil, or it will be God. And we must be the type of people who say, God's word is true. That's the authority. That's the authority. And the first promise that needs to be believed, if you want to begin the journey of faith in Christ, if you want to be receive justification by faith in Christ, and then begin the life of faith, there is a promise. There's the first promise that you must believe. There is a door that you must walk through. There's a path you must begin walking down. And if you don't go through this door, you don't go through this door, you don't know Christ. You can't know him. If you don't go through this door, you don't go to heaven, you go to hell when you die. This is the foundational promise on which all the other promises are built as it relates to walking by faith in Christ. And here it is. Romans 4.23. This is the point Paul is driving to. He's given us, giving us the example of Abraham that God promised Abraham he would give him a son even though he was old and Abraham believed the promise. And he's using this example to, to bring us to verse 23. It says, Now it, righteousness, was credited to Abraham, to him, was not written for Abraham alone. You see that in verse 23? Now it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. He's like, this is a, sto- this is a powerful story, and it's, it's an example of faith. And he says, but it's not just for him. It's for you. It's for us. It, righteousness, will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the dead. Verse 25. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So how can a sinful person be, be made right with a holy God? How can righteousness be given to sinful people? And what Paul says in verse 25 is that he, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses. That the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, Son of God, was born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. Then he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law. And then he went to the cross. And why did he go to the cross? What well, says that he was delivered up? That God the Father delivered his own son up to the cross for our trespasses. The wages of sin is death. We deserve death because of what we have done. And God put our record of sin on his one and only son. And at the cross, it was God the Father who crushed his own son. So that when Christ died, the payment for sin was made. And it says that after he died, he was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea for three days. And then he was raised. Raised from the dead. That God the Father raised his son from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. Demonstrating that Jesus is the son of God. That the payment for sin was made on our behalf. And that now the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns over all things. And he offers forgiveness of sins, righteousness, eternal life to all who would believe this promise. So the person, if you want to know, what does it mean? What's the very heartbeat of 
of Christianity, what it means is that you stop looking to your baptism. You're not saved by your baptism. You're not saved by your, your, your church attendance. You're not saved through communion. You're not saved by growing up in a Christian home. You're not saved by giving your money away, but you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you put all of your hope, all of your trust in him. And when you believe that promise, you're raised. You're given a new life. You are justified. And the life of faith begins. Romans 1.16, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as, just as it was written, the righteous will live by faith. It is the introduction into the life of faith. Believing the promise, then walking with God by believing his promises. This is the Christian life. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you bet your life on the promises of God? Or are you hedging? Are you hedging? Are you split? Are you wavering? Don't waver. Waver no longer. Decide in your soul, oh God, your word is true. I will build my my life. I will bet my life in my eternity on what you have to say. Lesson number two, face reality with the promises of God. Lesson number two, face reality with the promises of God. If you ask Richard Dawkins uh, for a definition of faith, Richard Dawkins is a famous atheist who wrote the book, The God Delusion. If you said, Richard, what is faith? He would say, faith is a state of mind that leads people to believe something in the total absence of supporting evidence. In other words, faith is, is what stupid people do. There's no evidence, you just believe it because you're a mindless idiot. Or if you asked Miracle on 34th Street, uh, the Christmas movie, what is faith? You would hear this. Faith is believing things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is believing things when common sense tells you not to. And these statements capture the sentiment of so many people in the world, in our culture, and so many Christians have imbibed this, this sentiment. What is faith? It's mindlessness. It's not, you don't think to exercise by faith, you just, it's blind irrationality, blind mindless optimism. And when you buy into that version of faith, a faith that doesn't go through your mind, a faith not built on the promises of God, then the way you, quote, live by faith largely is by ignoring reality. It's thinking happy thoughts and ignoring reality. My wife Meg and I, we were watching the 49ers uh, play last night, play the Packers, uh, and uh, it was a good game, but during the third, or into the fourth quarter, it was not looking good for the 49ers. If you're watching the game, not looking good for the 49ers. <clears throat> and I'm sitting, sitting with my wife in our bed, and as the game is developing, getting later and later into the game, nearing the end, my wife, she kept going like this. She, go, she goes, can't watch, I can't watch. Can't watch, I can't watch. And because watching the game was producing stress in her soul. Like, you're just, oh, don't throw up an interception, Brock. You know, we love you. <laughs> you know, like, you're the greatest. <laughs> but but you, you, could f- you could see it. Uh, you could see it. Now, I was able to watch the game, okay? I enjoyed watching the game. And you might think, oh, a football game? You can't watch a football game? Um, what about your bank account? Can you look at it? What happens when you look at your bank account? Can you get on a scale? Can you look at your relationships? Can you look at your own marriage? There are so many things in life that when we look at them, they cause distress. They cause distress. And so the way that we live life is by ignoring reality. We can't look at reality. So we just hide blind optimism, hide blind optimism, and that is not, brothers and sisters, that is not the life of faith. Uh, What we learn from Abraham 
is that Abraham was able to look reality in the eye. He was able to look, stare at it. And I believe that Christians are the best equipped people on the planet to look at the darkness of the world and be courageous. Not because we're awesome, but because we have the promises of God. And the way you face the darkness of the world is with the promises of God. The way you look at your hopeless situation is with the promises of God. Look at verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, I've shared this before, but I think this is a helpful observation to see his, Abraham's faith equation. He has an equation. There's something that he's doing here that requires us to think about our lives. And so here's the first factor in the equation. My dead body. He considered it. He actually looked at it. Do you see that in verse 19? He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead. So he's looking at his, his body. And he says, my body will be as useful in getting Sarah pregnant as a dead body. That's what he says. Since he was about 100 years old. The next factor, Sarah's dead womb. Verse 19. So he's thinking about my dead body. And he says, and he also considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now notice the wisdom of Abraham, the seasoned husband. He says, my body is dead. Uh, but your body, Sarah, it's not dead. You're still smoking. You're great. You look great. You don't look a day over 85. It's not your body. It's your uterus. Your uterus is dead. The deadness of Sarah's womb. Plus 65 years or 60 plus years of trying to get pregnant. Could you imagine that? If your heart is set on having a child and you go, I have a dead body. Sarah has a dead womb. And we've been trying to get pregnant for 60 years. So what does that equation equal? What should it equal? No hope. No hope. There's no hope, humanly speaking. Romans 4, 18. He believed, Abraham believed, hoping against hope. He hoped against hope. He hoped when there was no reason for hope. Hoping against hopelessness, literally. So why does he hope? Is it just positive thinking? Is he just blindly optimistic? What is the source of his hope? It's the promise of God. It is the promise of God. It is his promise. The promise of God is designed to be the anchor for our souls. It is designed to be the foundation of our faith. The promises of God, it's where we put our feet when everything around us is shaking. It's how we build our lives. This is how Abraham faced reality, which means that faith operates at the level of your motives. The promises of God, faith in Christ, promises of God are designed to operate at the level of your motives. Motives answer why questions. You want to know someone's motives? Ask them a why question. So that's where the promise is. When you're thinking about the word of God, what do I do? Where does the word of God need to fit in my soul? It needs to operate at the level of your motives, answering the why question. So if you look at uh, Abraham for a moment. It, it says in verse 18, he believed hoping against hope so that he became the father of many nations. Why, Abraham? Why? According to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He took that promise and loaded it in his heart. That was the anchor of his hope, the foundation of his faith. He says, why do I have hope? It is because God has given me his word. 
He has made me a promise, and God will do what he says. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened, <clears throat> strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. He says, God made that promise, he's gonna do it. That's my, that's my hope. His confidence was not in himself. And I love the little phrase here, fully convinced, that Abraham was fully convinced. That's where we, isn't that where you wanna be? I mean, don't you wanna be at a place where you're convinced that it's true? But see, you don't get there. You, you, you don't start fully convinced. It says that he was strengthened, or literally, he grew strong in his faith. But how do you grow strong in your faith? How do you do that? If you're here this morning and you're like, okay, okay, I want to live by faith. I want to trust in the promises of God. How do you do that? Well, just to close our time, I want to give you one word and one tool. One word and one tool that will help you grow strong in your faith. Uh, The first word, or not the first, but the word, is the word consider. Consider. Here's the principle. You will never have a convinced faith until you have a considered and tested faith. Where does the conviction come? Does it start at the beginning of the process or towards the end or as you go? It typically does not start at the beginning. You have to consider, you have to think, and you have to be tested over the course of time. Remember what Jesus says when he's talking about the life of faith in Matthew chapter 6? He says this all over the place. You see this language. I would encourage you, do a word study on the word consider. And see how the New Testament writers use that word, consider. It's a, it, it is a brilliant thing. Jesus, he's talking about, oh, you of little faith. And he, the instruction he gives to grow in your faith is to consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. He says, you gotta think, you gotta think, you gotta think, you gotta think about who God is and what's going on in the world. And so the word, you wanna grow? Consider, 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 consider. Most people's Bible, Bible reading is not all that productive. God's word is powerful, but it's not all that productive. If you sit down, headphones in, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of reading, close the book, go on with your day. That likely will not produce the type of results you are aiming for. We must be people who think deeply about life. I'm not saying overanalyze everything that's going on, but we, got, we, we need to have minds that ponder the character of God, ponder our situation, ponder the promises of God. And so here's one tool just to help you. I hope this helps you. I, I've, I've done a version of this many, many, many times. Here's the tool. Here's the tool. Get out a piece of paper. Just get out a piece of paper. And write at the top, there might be a better word, but this is the word I like, obstacles. Obstacles. Obstacles to, to obedience. Why is it hard to obey God right now? Could you put that into words? What, where, where are the obstacles? Where are the challenges to trusting and obeying God right now in your life? And if, if you say, I'm just rejoicing, thank, I'm just thanking God all the time, and I'm moving forward and trusting him and obeying him, praise God. But there will be times, I guarantee you, if you're not going through it right now, tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, or maybe not tomorrow, but maybe next week, you're gonna go through times where you feel like there's this tension, this difficulty to actually obey him, to trust him. So just write it out. What, it, what are those reasons? What are they? And the goal of doing this is to look at reality. What are you up against? And then 
somewhere else on that piece of paper. I like to line them up so that these two words are on both sides of the paper. You write promises. Promises. What does God say? What does he say? The goal of writing promises is to consider what God says, not how you feel, not what other people say. What does God say? You need God's word as the anchor. If you're not going to move, if you're going to be strong, you need God's word as the anchor. You need God's word as the firm foundation on which you stand. And so let's just consider one example. Let's think about Sarah for a moment, the, the wife of Abraham. And you write obstacles. What's Sarah's obstacle? I'm like 100 years old, and I've never had a child. Big obstacle if you want to have a baby. She's not quite 100, but she's really old. What about the promise? Promises. God promised me that I'll have a child, and he's faithful. And he's faithful. See, a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. This is, this is not a good decision that I made uh, back in the day, back in college, but our church, believe it or not, was doing a building fundraiser, and uh, my dad was leading that at the time, so he was spending a lot of time and getting everything ready, and, and uh, there was this big event where everyone came and they made their pledges uh, for the building campaign, and I was in college, I didn't have any money, this is not a good decision, but I just thought, I thought it would be funny, I thought my dad would get a kick out of this, and so I wrote a check, I didn't have any money, for $500,000, and I put it in the envelope and I gave it, I actually gave it, knowing that my dad would see it, and I thought he would think it was really funny. He didn't think it was very funny at all. <laughs> he was like, what are you doing? Anyways, I was appropriately uh, reprimanded. But anyways, besides the point, why didn't they celebrate? That's the point. Why didn't they celebrate when they got a check for 500000 Because they saw my name on it. They said, he can't do that. He's written a, pr a promise 500,000, but they can't take that baby to the bank. They can't. What are they going to do with it? See, a promise is only as good as the person who made it. And so what happened with Sarah, look at verse, or Hebrews 11, 11, verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered the one who had promised was faithful. She says, I can't do this, but God has made a promise to me, and he's able. He's faithful. He will do, he will do all that he promised. And if you read the story of Sarah, you see she doesn't start there. There's much struggling back and forth. And so I would encourage you guys, when you struggle, you're looking, I think God wants me to do this, but there are obstacles. You write them out, you think about them, and then you take God's word, and you think about them, write them out. What does God say? And let those promises sink into your soul. Let those promises encourage you and strengthen you that you might grow. And the more you live that way, the more you will draw near to God, the more you will know him deeply, and you will find that God does what he says.